Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you because we can. We can boldly approach you. So, Lord, right now we pray corporately as your body of believers. Hear our heart, Lord. Forgive us for our sin, we pray. Lord, for the ways that we have wandered away from you. We're back today with you in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. We want to hear from your word, Lord. Would you speak to our hearts from your word? Open us up to that. We pray for those among us who are sick and who are hurting, who are discouraged, maybe. I think of Bill, who's struggling, Lord, with recovery. He's not struggling, but it is a process. And so, Lord, encourage him. Bring him home this week. I pray he and Becky could adjust well. Get him walking on that leg very soon, Lord. We pray for our, the team of people who are seeking your will about this land. Lord, make it clear. We are fine staying right here if that's what you want. We are fine with that. We want what you want. Open the door up again for us here at Spring Mills Middle School, Lord. It's a blessing to be here. I pray you continue to provide that for us. And then, Lord, for those that have come to our church recently, I thank you for them, Lord. Do what you want to in their lives. Bind us together as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the top of your worship notes, I have Jesus Christ. Steel and velvet. Say, where in the world does that come from? You ever heard that expression before? Who's heard heard that? Any historians in the room? Do you know who was called a man of steel and velvet? I didn't know this, okay? I came across this by accident. What happened was, years ago, this is why, I'll tell you who the person is in just a minute. Years ago, clear back in, let's see, 1994, I got, a, I got a gift from my sister. It says, you will be a wonderful father. I don't know whether that's true or not, but my sister Kathy thought so that day. You will be a wonderful father. Merry Christmas, Keith and Kathy. This was the Christmas before my first child was born. Okay? And my sister sent me this book by Charles Stanley. It's called A Man's Touch. And I was, uh, I was not very mature in Christ. I was a believer. I was hungry but the Lord hadn't really grown me yet. And um, Kathy sent me this book. And I'd look at it and I could see pages that are dogged over, you know, where I'd read it and things that I underlined. And, you know, it's kind of neat. I pulled this out once in a while. It was really a, it was an important book in my life as a, as a believer. There's one chapter that really stuck out at me. It was talking about men. And particularly it was talking about fathers. And it was challenging me as a, as a new father and Charles Stanley wrote that you need to be a man of steel and a man of velvet. And that really, that really stuck out in my mind. Later he said this. It was Abraham Lincoln. Anybody know that? Writer Carl Sandburg described Abraham Lincoln as a man of steel and velvet. There's no better description of the kind of man that God wants you to be. Throughout the Old Testament, we see, the, we see that the men whom God used mightily were men of steel and men of velvet. He says a man of steel is a man who's committed, who has conviction, who has courage, who has character, who is constructive with his words and confident in who he is in Christ. That's a man of steel. And I remember reading this as a young man, thinking, man, I want to be that. I want to be that kind of man. I want to be a, a strong man of conviction and willing to stand 
for my beliefs, for, for who I know God to be. I want to be that kind of man as a dad and as a husband. And then I turned the page and I, I kept reading about the man of velvet. Now you know velvet. Some of you love velvet. You drape yourself in it possibly. I don't know. You just you love the feel of it, you know? It's nice and soft. He says, as a man of velvet, you are going to have to listen to much that you do not particularly want to hear. Hmm. Velvet says, I can be reached at all times. And I care about what you think. So a man of velvet cares. He's considerate. He's cooperative. He communicates with his mouth. He talks, guys. Okay, And at times... He has a crying heart. Are you a man of steel, a man of velvet? I want to be as a father and as a husband. But as I read on, Stanley said something else that just really hit me hard. And that was that Jesus was the exact example of that kind of a character, of that kind of a personality. That Jesus is a man of steel, conviction, and a man of velvet, a caring touch. And we're going to see that today in our passage. Go to Luke chapter 12, would you? Luke chapter 12, Jesus Christ, steel and velvet. And um, Luke chapter 20, I mean to say. Luke chapter 20. There's a great story that Jesus tells here. And I'm going to jump into the parable and just read that for us. And then we'll walk through the rest of the passage because it's kind of long. And so, but I want you to read the parable. I want you to feel it. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. In my Bible, that's page 1,593. So it's about you know, three-fourths of, three of the way of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 20. Luke records this. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. Now, you know a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. You can think of it that way. Jesus tells a story with a point. It's a made-up story. It's a made-up story. But it has a significant point that's not made up that applies to us today. He says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. So he rented it. This would be very common in the day. It's common today. People will rent a field and then they'll might plant corn or some other crop on it and they'll use the land. So a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, He sent a servant to the tenants. Literally, that is a slave. He sends probably an accountant to the tenant. Tells us why. So that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this is not he wanted grapes. That's not what this means. Fruit meant he wants some of the profit. This vineyard has earned some money and now the accountant has come and said, I want the percentage. We agreed upon this. You'd work and I would get, say, 10% of the profit and I'm here to collect. But the tenants beat him. Literally, it is skinned him. Okay? Skinned him alive. The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, all those who heard this, who were, who were familiar with this idea of tenant farming, they were, they were shocked by this. What? I, I cannot believe this. This is shocking. These tenant farmers attack his accountant that they send to collect? This can't be. 
I'm telling you, the owner of this field had the right to come there and demand them to be thrown into prison. I mean, the, the, the full arm of the law be brought down against these tenant farmers for this. This is a malicious wounding. This isn't just stealing. They wounded this man, targeted him, physically attacked him. But watch what the owner does. Verse 11. And he sent another servant. Oh, I can't believe it. What an idiot. Everyone's thinking this guy's out of his mind. Sent another servant. They also beat him and treated him shamefully. So only did they physically attack him. They derided him. They, they said awful things. They shamed him as a man and the, and the owner as a man. They brought shame on him. And sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded. And they cast him out. They kicked him off the farm. Now you wonder what in the world is going on. The owners wonder what's going on. What's happening? I send my accountant and they attack him. I send another and they attack him. Well, the owner says, i got to do something. So verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I've got it. I'll send my beloved son. Surely, yes, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. They're reaching back to a law of the day that if a tenant farmer had possession of the land for three years, we understand from the writings of the day. Three years, land was unused by the owner. The tenant farmer took possession. They want the land for their own. So they're going to kill the son and keep it. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they did just that. They killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It's interesting, Matthew answers this. Well, the, those who heard it answered it. Okay, listen to, their, listen to their answer. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, and it says this. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That's the answer to the question. What will you do? You will deal with those guys and find somebody else to take care of the land. He will come and destroy those tenants, Jesus said, and give the vineyard to the others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Interesting response there. We'll stop there and go back and try to dissect this passage a little bit. I hope you can see where this is headed. I hope you can see what Jesus is explaining here. Remember where we are in the life of Christ. We are just a matter of days before Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be handed over to the Roman authorities. He'll be tried, found guilty, and murdered. It's probably Tuesday before that Friday that this is happening. We're going to see just in a minute that Jesus is teaching there in the temple. It's one last call that people might repent. It's a season of Passover. And so the city is filled with people. 
And this is at a time when the, the Jewish people were expecting a deliverer. So they're excited that maybe Jesus is the one. I mean, after all, he's been healing. After all, he's come with great power and authority. Maybe this is the one. And so there's a fervor in the city. And so we saw last week they shouted Hosanna as he came down the streets in Jerusalem. The people threw their cloaks on the ground. They threw palm branches on the ground. And Jesus had the triumphal entry where he came to Jerusalem. And I believe this is only so that God in his glory could see his son glorified. And people did worship him at that time. And Jesus said this. Remember he said, if these people don't worship me, the rocks themselves will rise up and do so. So we see here that Jesus is coming into a a place that once delivered, once delivered, but doesn't want his deliverance. It's important for us. Maybe today you want delivered, but you don't want his deliverance. We, we need to hear and see the warning here in this passage. Okay, let's go back and get the context. Really, this passage starts, quite honestly, back in 1945, okay? In chapter 19, verse 45. So let's read that. Jesus entered the temple. This is Jesus addressing man's needs. I want you to see that Jesus, being a man of steel and velvet... He's now going to address man's needs. He enters the temple. He began to drive out those who sold. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made a den of robbers. So Jesus here upsets the money changing tables, drives out those who are profiting from religion, is what they're doing. Okay? People do that often. Fill their pockets through religion. We all know that. We see that on TV all the time. And they're doing it clear back here. Okay? Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. He clears the temple, and now he teaches daily. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. Now listen to this next phrase. For all the people were hanging on his words. I love that little phrase there in Luke 19. We see that Jesus here is he's addressing man's needs. He is engaging the hearts of those who have a heart to hear. He's engaging the hearts of those who have a heart to hear. How many of you know you can hear and not hear? We know that to be true. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. For some, he drives out the sin. And he calls people to repentance. Turn to God. He drives them out. And he's, he's moved with zeal for the righteousness of God. But for others, he's teaching them daily now. Jesus knows he's at the end of his time. And daily he's in the temple yard there teaching in an engaging way. I want to challenge you with something. Invite Jesus to enter your world. Invite Him to enter your world. Don't think that as a pastor, that I don't have to do this. I can go days just like you. I could go weeks and months and never invite Christ into my world. Just like you. Just like you. 
Fill your day with TV and sports and hobbies and beautiful sunsets and you know, lovely families and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus has no place in my life if I don't invite Him. If I don't invite Him. No, no, understand. He comes in as a man of steel and velvet. And He comes in often. He comes in often. And He might convict me as steel. But I want you to know something. As I think about Christ... And the way God interacts with us, He's much more velvet than steel. Fill in the blank. God leads us to repentance through His blank. It's Romans 2.4. God leads us to repentance through His blank. I say you want some choices. Okay, I'll give you some. Okay. A, condemnation. God leads us to repentance through his condemnation. Yeah? Huh? 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 Don't raise your hand. Okay. All right. Choice B. God leads us to repentance through his holiness. Okay. God leads us to repentance through His people bringing judgment down upon us. Huh? No. You looked at it yet? Romans 2.4? You know how God brings us to repentance? Just through His kindness. Through His kindness. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You're wise to look and see. Is He right? You need to read, look at it right now. Turn Romans 2. Is it there? It is. God leads us to repentance through His kindness. Through His velvet touch. Jesus engaged the hearts of those who wanted to hear. He engaged their hearts. Okay, so let's look at some who didn't have that heart. And we look at verse number 1 of chapter 20. Jesus' authority now is going to be challenged. Verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So there's what he's doing. He is teaching and he is preaching the gospel. He is teaching you about the nature of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God. And he's also proclaiming the gospel. Turn to him and you'll be saved. And the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it? That gives you this authority. I remember I was in a passion play years ago. It was a great experience. Loved it. Loved it. And I played the chief Pharisee. I was the biggest, baddest guy of the whole thing. Maybe, uh, except for Judas. Maybe he was worse. But I got to be the bad guy. And you know, it was hard. Because there was a Jesus in the passion play. This is a, a depiction of the last week of, of Christ's life here on earth. Okay, In, in, his, in his body. Before glorification. And so... You were depicting that, and, and you have Pharisees, and somebody had to play the Pharisee, and so the leader, I guess, you know, he looked at the crowd and said, who's the worst person in the room? Okay, I guess it's you, Lowell. Thanks, Brent. Um, so I played the chief Pharisee, and I, this, I remember this line. And you're looking at the person who's pray, playing Christ. And, you know, after you practice it so many times, it's like, you, don't, you know that isn't Jesus, but, you know, you... you you just your mind plays a little trick, like you know. Well, that is that Jesus. I'm 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 like accusing Jesus. 
This line was so hard. Tell us by what authority you do these things. And who is it that gives you this authority? I mean, they are, you know, these three people, these three groups, this chief priests, scribes, and elders. This would be like, the only thing I'd think of, this would be like the Republicans, the Democrats, and say, you know, the Libertarians, all right? In every area of life, in every decision, they always disagree, okay? The chief priest, the elders, and the scribes, they're in constant conflict with one another, except for this. They all come together to call for the death of Jesus. Watch him handle them. I'll ask you a question. Tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And I know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about his cousin, who was the forerunner of him, the son of Elizabeth, who was the sister, I'm sorry, cousin of Jesus' mother, Mary. Follow that family tree. This is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. His mission was to come, prepare the way for Jesus to come. He had a very important line in his life. It was John 1.29 in your Bible. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said that as he pointed to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was a prophet that came to Jerusalem, to, to Israel actually, and proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was rejected by the leadership. By the leadership that rejected him. But the crowds, the masses of people, admired him. So the Pharisees have a problem here. Jesus says, you tell me. John the Baptist, from heaven or from from somewhere else? They know. If they say from heaven, he's from heaven, well then the obvious question is, then why didn't you accept what he had to say? Then why don't you see that Jesus is the Messiah? Why, did you, why were you part of him really giving his life? Why did you reject him if they say from heaven? On the other hand, if they say he's from somewhere else, he's from man or he's from earth or whatever, well then the whole crowd is going to just be in an uproar. He's a prophet of God. So they stand just dumbfounded. They have no response. Because that's the way it works. The only thing that stands the test is truth. The only thing that stands is truth. A lie, a lack of integrity, a falsehood, given enough time, will be revealed. But truth can stand the test. They discussed it with one another, and they said just what I just explained. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why do you not believe? If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Let me just explain why Jesus didn't answer that question as his authority is being challenged. The reason he didn't answer that question is he's been answering it for three years. He's been answering it for three years. And we know all they're trying to do is find a way to call for his death. That's all they're trying to do. They're trying to trick him into saying that his authority is from God. Now, he's been proclaiming that, but in this moment, if he says that, then they can call for his death. And Jesus wasn't ready for that. 
No, no, no. He wasn't going to allow that to happen for three more days. He had some things to do. He had some things to do. One of the things he had to do was tell the next parable. Had to get that done, see? Couldn't be arrested yet. So he walked through this parable. And it's really about man's rejection and God's response. We saw man's defense. What right do you have to say this to us? Who are you? That was man's defense. But now we're going to see man's rejection and God's response. And this parable is, is just awesome. As I said, there, there is a parallel in Matthew chapter 21. You can read it. Most of the details are, are, are you know, there's minor differences. Because you have two different people explaining what happens. So differences aren't a big deal to us. There's nothing contradictory. But there are different aspects of the story that are explained. Now this concept of, a, of the owner of this vineyard hiring out his land is a very common one of the day. A rich man who owned a vineyard wasn't going to work it. No, no, no. If you owned a vineyard, you were a very wealthy man. You didn't work it. Slavery was part of this culture. As awful and as, as wrong as it may be, it's just a reality when we read the passage that that was something that was, these people understood. So it was really an indentured servanthood where I would hire myself out as a worker. But this was kind of another level of that. This was more of a, a business proposition where somebody came under the employment of the owner and they would tend the vineyard with an agreed percentage to be given to the owner. Now, he's on a long journey. As I already said, they're hoping for three years. They're hoping to be neglected for three years because then they own it. But again and again and again, the owner sends somebody back four times the owner sends someone back to check, and each time, he's damaged by the tenants. Now, it's significant, and we've already read it, it's significant to jump down to verse number 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed the son of the vineyard owner. They killed him. What then, Jesus asked, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now we know, as I already read to you in Matthew chapter 21, that, the, that those in, in, in hearing said, well, he, they should be killed. And Jesus pretty much agrees with that. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to the others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, do you catch what just happened there? The first time Jesus explains this, and says that the owner of the vineyard is going to come and kill him, He's, they are in agreement with Jesus. Matthew chapter 21, they actually answer that, and they say, the owner should come and wipe him out. But then it says, when Jesus said to them, this is what's going to happen, when Jesus said, I want to get it right here, when Jesus said, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others, they heard this. Now this word heard, remember earlier I said you can hear and not hear? This word heard means it's kind of a neat word. It means to hear with understanding. We might say they got it. They got it. And then they said what? Surely not. You know what they realized at that moment? You know what they realized? He's talking about us. 
See, up until that moment, they were like, how dare this stupid tenant? I cannot believe him. Their righteous stand. But at this moment, God in His grace peeled back the scale on their heart and they heard, they heard, and they heard. And they said, no. No. Jesus says this. He looked directly at them. His eyes piercing their hearts. He said, what then is this that is written? This is quoting from Psalm 118. I'll put it on the screen in just a minute. The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. They understood what they, who they were and what they'd been doing. See, what Jesus is describing, see, at this moment, here's what they got. Here's what they got. The owner of the vineyard is God. God owns the vineyard. What's the vineyard? You find all through Scripture, most most particularly in Isaiah chapter 5, we see that Israel, the nation of Israel, that God chose these people out of the world and said, these will be my special people that I will take the gospel through them to all the people. God chose the Hebrew nation. We call them the Jews. We call them Israel. We call them the children of Israel. Okay, God chose them. And He called them His vineyard. Listen to Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, an outcry. He chose them as his vineyard. Realize that if we walk through Israel, there's vineyards everywhere. Okay? This is not, you know, you see like one like every, you know, mile, square mile. You might see a vineyard in West Virginia. You don't see it. It doesn't happen here. But in that area, everywhere. So it's a perfect illustration of God choosing people and using them. And do you know what they did, Israel? It breaks your heart to realize it. God would send prophets. Like, they sent, like God sent a prophet named Isaiah. You know what they did to Isaiah? They sawed him in half. Literally. They cut him in half. They shoved him into a log, tradition tells us, and took a big saw and cut the log in half. Wicked. Because he brought a message of repentance. And then took Jeremiah. And they stoned him. It took Zechariah. They ran him out of town and stoned him. Amos had to run for his life. Over and over and over, God would send prophets to His vineyard, Israel, and they would reject them and kill them. Does this not sound like the parable? Until finally, God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to His own, and His own received Him not. And so, at that point, God says, fine, Fine. You will not receive me. I will turn to another. And that's what Jesus was talking about in verse number 16. He will come and destroy those tenants. The tenants are the spiritual leaders of Israel. It is not Israel. God didn't destroy and turn from Israel. He turned from the religious system of Israel. 
run by the Pharisees and the scribes and, the, and all the Sadducees and all that. He turned from that and turned to some others. Well, who did he turn to? A couple of Jewish guys who were nobodies who figured out who Jesus was. And God gave to them the keys to heaven. Matthew chapter 16. And it was upon them that God built the foundation that we call the church now. Ephesians 2 chapter 20. See, the religious leaders, the leaders, the people who were called to lead the way to God did not respond to this with any kind of responsibility. They, they took rather than serve. They fed upon rather than to give their life for. And so God said, I will choose another. I will choose another and I will use them greatly. Let me read to you the qualifications of the others that He chose. It's in Acts chapter 4. Listen to what, how they're described. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they here are the religious leaders. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were, I love this, these next two phrases, uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that qualified them fully. We see a principle here that is very important. And there's, a, there's two, two edges to this sword. Back to Luke chapter 20. God gives us, each of us, a unique call. He's called us all to make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. He's called us all to commit unto faithful men. Those who will then commit unto others what we have been taught. He's called us all to that. We call it discipleship. He's called us all to be faithful with the stewardship of the gospel. We call that evangelism. Okay? He's called us all to be faithful in this local body. Not to, not to give up meeting with one another as some are in the habit of doing, but instead to come together and spur one another on. He's called us all to this. And that's a great call. It's an exciting call. It's a, it's a blessing to be called in that way. That's just a general call. He's given us a unique call. Let me tell you about a unique call He's given us here at Center Point Bible Church. It's a unique call. You know, we meet here in this school. We meet right here, surrounded by all these schools, and we have an opportunity with this school that is very unique. Very unique. What an opportunity this is that God has given our church. God's given you a unique place where you operate. You have a sphere of influence that, quite honestly, if I walked into it, they'd be like, you know, first they might be like, who's this minister? Who's this pastor? Get out of here. Or they might say, who is this dumb guy? You know, who, who is this guy who can't play football? Who is this guy who's you know, old? Who is this guy that's young? I don't know. There's some reason why I could not be accepted in your sphere the way that you can. God's given you that unique place. But what we see in this passage... Oh, there's one more. Sorry, there's one more I wanted to hit. 
You have a unique role in your family, in your home, that no one else can fill. No one. I can't father your kids. You can't mother mine. You can't obey my parent. That's my role. You and I have a unique place in our homes. What strikes me about this passage, verse number 16, if we're not faithful, God invite, what a blessing that is, that is kindness. But if we're not faithful, God will find another. And He will give that blessing to them. Now don't hear that louder than everything else I've said. Because God leads to repentance through His kindness. Be overwhelmed with the kindness of God that He's given you a great mission in your life. He's given you a great opportunity in your work, in your home, in your community, at your church. Man, the people you touch, the lives you can touch, the people you can influence towards Christ, so kind, God has been so kind to you. Let's respond. You know, it's interesting to me just to wrap up here. What Jesus does in verse number 17 and, and on. We'll put them up on the screen now. Um, you know, He again offers grace. What then is this that is written? And He quotes from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. You know, God, Jesus is trying to reach back. Do you realize who He's talking to? Right now He's talking to the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. The, many of these men... I guarantee you had that passage memorized. And so he's reaching into their life one more time. It's an offer of grace. He's, he didn't just say, hey, I'm the Messiah, guys. Accept it or not. That's not what he said. He could have said that. Instead, he reached down into their hearts and he grabbed Psalm 118. It's like he's saying, hey, guys, remember what you know. Remember what you've heard. I'm Him. I'm here. Again, He offers grace. And we see it played out in the next verse, Acts. I'll put it on the screen here for you. Acts 4. This is now, Jesus has already been resurrected. Peter's preaching a sermon. And look what Peter does. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. It's like 50 days later. Okay? It's 50 days after this event. 50 days have gone by. They saw unbelievable things happen when Jesus was killed. Darkness over the whole land. Complete darkness. This one will blow your mind. Matthew says that bodies came out of the grave and walked around. Don't ask me to explain that one. I don't get that. But the Bible says it. They heard report, and over 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Christ. Fifty days have gone by, and Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And there, at that time, there was an invitation given, and a great number of priests put their trust in Christ. Again, He offers grace. 
The call is faithfulness, folks. It's faithfulness. God has been so kind to us. He's been so kind to you individually, to our body, to the corporate body of believers here. God has been so kind to us. Let's give Him full rights in our life. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We want to respond to You today. Lord, Your kindness exceeds anything that we could ever hope for or imagine. Lord, that You have loved us immeasurably, died for us, rule in our hearts, and are willing to give us another chance. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. We cry out to You, Hosanna, save us. In Your name we pray. Amen.